it has to be balanced in terms of its needs and its uses because obviously it ranges from everything from whether or not you have sidewalks to whether you have poles or ducts along it, or whether you have roads and culverts, everything. It's, it's really just that public way that's out there. You are listening to episode 169 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I am Lisa Gonzalez. Today we hear from Sean Stokes from Baller Herbst Stokes and Lyde one of the country's leading law firms working on telecommunications law matters. Sean joins Chris this week to discuss right-of-way and pole attachment issues. In addition to a basic tutorial, Chris and Sean talk about the practicalities involved when multiple entities wish to access these public spaces and the poles that inhabit them. Sean and his colleagues have published a number of resources on pole attachment and right-of-way at Baller.com. You can also learn more about how these issues have affected some of the communities we follow at muninetworks.org. Now here are Sean and Chris. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Sean Stokes, a principal in the Baller Herbst Stokes and Lyde Law Firm. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here, uh, Sean. I've been uh, aware of your work for a very long time. Uh, you know, you work with uh, Jim Baller, who who I got to know among the first people I got to know when I was working uh, in this uh, this industry. Um, but uh, maybe you can tell people for uh, who are not familiar with uh, the law firm, uh, what do you guys do? Yeah, we're a uh, communications law firm uh, based in D.C. We also have a, an office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But we uh, primarily occupy the space of uh, doing work with municipal, government, community-type entities, all facets of communications, be it telecommunications, broadband, cable, television, wireless. And we do, as as you indicated, we do a lot of work in the the, uh, community broadband space. We also do a lot of work with um, municipally-owned utilities, both in terms of their forays into providing services to others, but also for their internal um, operations of their networks and keeping the, uh, the lights on. And the main thing that you and I are going to be talking about today is, is rights-of-way management, polls, and things like that. Um, is that. Is that sort of been your specialty? Yeah, I, I think to a certain extent it has. I um, had been the associate general counsel with an organization called the Utilities Telecommunications Council, in the in the 90s, and we represented um, all stripes of utilities there: the investor, the public, and the, the cooperatives. And pole attachments was the common denominator, and so did, did been doing that work for close to 25 years. Um, one of the folks from Free Press, uh, Matt Wood, who um, you know, is a, or Free Press is an organization that works uh, in concert with us on a number of issues. And uh, and he says he can make anything related to pull attachments within a minute, basically, of talking about any subject. It's absolutely true. It's it's a, both a cure and cause for insomnia, but it's amazing how much pull attachments in one way or the other or access to Dr. Conduit is integral to so many different projects um, or it's analogous to what people are trying to do. Um, and just in, in so many facets of, of things that you wouldn't expect it to be there. Well, let's let's take a step back and maybe talk. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the general rights of way, and we're going to narrow back down to pole attachments in a few minutes. But uh, when I when I say the rights of way, often abbreviated ROW, uh, what am I talking about? 
generally people are talking about when they talk about right-of-way is thoroughfares, be it streets, sidewalks, roads, owned by and for the public. It can be owned by the state or county or local governmental entities. The federal government even has rights of way. But it's basically that area, um, both on the ground, above and, and underground, um, that has been obtained by those governmental entities for the benefit of the public. And it, and, and, and so it's, it sort of has to be balanced in terms of its its needs and its uses, um, because obviously it ranges from everything from whether or not you have sidewalks to whether you have poles or ducts along it, or whether you have um, roads and culverts, everything. It's, it's really just that public way that's out there. And why is that so useful? I mean, why why would we want to have the, the telecommunications companies only be able to work in that area? Well, really, it, it comes down to... Uh, a couple of things, one of which being if it's set there, it is a known quantity where the facilities are going to be placed and it's much easier to sort of organize the rest of community and life around it. If you go back to not the turn of this past century, but the prior century, and you look at some of those archived photos uh, when telephone service and electric service first started and you would see um, just lines of poles and, and telephone lines running everywhere and that was basically because every discrete use of a telephone or electric line had its own um, dedicated facilities to it and it just became incredibly cumbersome um, and to manage the rest of the, the public way um, let alone places outside of the public way. So it, it made more sense to have them um, in particular lanes and paths and, and freely accessible um, uh, to everyone that has those uses in the same way that you, you, know, you can only drive your trucks in certain places and you can you ride your bike in certain areas and, and other places are dedicated for other uses. Yeah, one of the things that I sometimes think is that there's a lot of discussion about whether access to the rights of way is too restrictive, and and I the the thought that comes to mind is well, if it if it was easier for a cable company or for anyone to negotiate individually with every single landholder to be able to put conduit in or something like that, uh, wouldn't we see that happening? Um, probably the rights of way are actually managed in a way that it makes that it really makes life a lot easier for these companies to be able to uh, deploy their networks, even if there are some basic, you know, requirements to do a franchise fee or things like that. Yeah, I think that, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if, if you had to go and negotiate with each individual parcel holder, any place where you were not able to reach an agreement could be held hostage by it. It, it, would, it would be a nightmare. I mean, it's it's comparable to when people talk about uh, what you need to do to say, look at putting in uh, new rail lines for some, you know, maglev train types of things. Putting aside all the technology aspects of it, they say just the sheer difficulty of obtaining brand new uh, rights to go along that would parallel where the existing facilities are is, is just monumental. And that's the same thing with telecommunications. Everywhere you go, you'd have to get individual agreements. How is this typically regulated? I mean, is this something that is done at the federal level, the local level, or how is it mixed up? In terms of just talking about the, the, the 
the public rights of way, that actually is primarily regulated at the state and local level. Um, the f- federal law, to the extent that you're not talking about federal property, has some general guidelines to it, but they leave most of it to the the state and local government, and it actually falls underneath the purview of a local governmental um, police power authority to protect the inte- integrity of uh, facilities and the safety and, and commerce, et cetera. Um, and the regulation portions of it, you know, we tend to focus more on the telecommunications parts of it, but there's all sorts of other entities that are, that are using these. And so um, the, the regulation tends to be at the state level, but that uh, authority then is usually um, being given down to the individual uh, uh, local governments, um, whether it's counties or cities, to administer and adopt their own um, requirements and regulations to manage that rights of way. And so I think we, we'll start to get a little bit more complicated as we talk about the polls, because um, I think, you know, the right of way is not the pole, right? The pole is sort of an object that's in the right of way and, and itself is treated a little differently from the rest of the right of way. Yeah, that, that's exactly what you think about it. Is the right of way is, is, is sort of the, the land, the property on which the pole or the conduit is situated. Um, and so while the state or local government may be the underlying uh, property owner of the right of way, the pole uh, is owned by whatever particular entity ha- has set that, that pole or conduit in that place. Um, and often as not, it's um, a utility, and of course the utility may be privately owned or it may be publicly owned. So it may even be owned by the same governmental entity that owns the rights of way, but they view it as a discrete piece of infrastructure that's in the property. And that's where it gets a little bit complicated because the access to rights of way doesn't necessarily and usually does not convey with it specific rights to get on particular poles. Who often owns the poles in, in any given community? Is there a, a general rule? I mean, I assume they were put there by a telephone or electric company originally. Historically, poles have been owned by the incumbent electric utility and incumbent telephone company, meaning the local telephone company. And for years, they had sort of a cooperative understanding relationship with one another that they both were utilities and they, their, their uses didn't tend to interfere with one another. The electric um, utilities tended to place their facilities on the top of the pole and the communications telephone companies placed theirs lower. And so rather than putting multiple poles for each individual use in, a sa- in the same area, they would typically enter into an agreement where the electric company would own half the poles, say, and the telephone company would own the other half, and they would grant one another uh, reciprocal use to get onto one another's poles. And that that worked fine until you started to get into a situation where uh, other entities wanted to get onto those and you needed to have an arrangement for it. That's still what you have right now, is the poles generally are still owned primarily by the electric and telephone. Over time, the electric companies have ended up owning a larger percentage of the poles for multiple reasons, but they probably own maybe 70% of the poles in a given area, and the telephone company owns about 30%. And who those entities are that own them in terms of their ownership 
uh, is varied. It could be, as I said, it's always going to be the telephone or electric company, but it may be a municipally owned electric company or a cooperatively owned electric company or a private electric company, but that's generally the, the breakdown between them. As I understand it, in some places, let's just say we're talking about a community that has 200 poles. Um, in some cases, if, if it was split 50-50, that would mean the telephone company owns 100 poles and the electric company owns 100 poles. But in other cases, it means that there's 200 poles and every single one of those poles is half-owned by the company, uh, by each. And so if you wanted to get permission to be on the pole, you'd actually have to secure permission from both pole owners. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, the scenario you're describing is often referred to as joint ownership, and that's more rare, but it still happens. Usually the way that that even happens, the way that that works out, though, is you don't necessarily have to get authority from both entities. Usually whichever entity um, has the primary control of that poll or maybe the communication space has been delegated sort of the administrative responsibility for letting third parties on there, but but you're absolutely right. Uh, as a practical matter, there are polls out there in communities where you would actually have to go to both the telephone company and the electric company to get some form of authorization to be on the same poll. So as a, as a local activist, I want to get access to the rights of way from my local government. Uh, what do I do if I want to you know, build a little mini fiber network and, and if I want to, let's, let's just say, bury it? The, the caveat I'd always give them uh, on something like this is that each, each state has its different rules and, and, and process for it. But, but from the local government point of view, if you want to just bury it, you don't need to deal with any any utility uh, um, per se. You would simply need access to the rights of way. If you were a telecommunications provider, meaning you want to use that the fiber that you're going to bury for telecommunication services, um, you could go to uh, the state presumably and get some sort of authorization, and that's usually a general authorization to. Um, occupy rights of way subject to the local government approving it for management purposes. If you weren't going to cross that line and actually provide what would be considered regulated telecommunication services, the state, the good news is the state tends to be hands off, but the, the bad news about it is that you then have to deal with the different permutations of each local government about how they allow people into their rights of way, um, and they tend to want to have some type of understanding of the types of facilities you're going to put in there and, and the services you're going to provide, but they cannot generally regulate the services you're going to provide. They can only manage the process of you going in there, in other words, your excavation processes. And then can they just arbitrarily deny or, I mean, when I say arbitrarily, I literally mean arbitrarily. What are the rules around it? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because we still have this sort of stovepipe regulatory process at the federal and state level where um, the rights of entities often are defined by the types of services they provide. So cable television companies get franchises, but it tends to be for the entire city. And uh, telephone companies get uh, rights to, to the public right-of-way if they're providing telecommunication services. And entities that are providing one or either, either one of those services kind of fall into this no man's land and they really, it could be arbitrary in all honesty. Um, now, I, I, one, one nice thing from, from the scenario you just talked about is 
in the FCC's um, uh, decision in their open internet access order last February, also the net neutrality decision, the big thing they they did there, and not to get into the weeds, but is they reclassified broadband internet access as a telecommunication service. And while, while it wasn't clearly the focus of it, one of the things that the FCC did say it when it did that was it said that also includes access to public rights of way. So at least right now, entities that were, say, only providing broadband service that didn't previously fit the definition of telecommunications under your scenario could say we're going to put in um, fiber and just directly bury it and local government wouldn't be able to act in that arbitrary manner any longer because now that entity would actually have some federal rights as a telecommunications provider. But, you know, there still are any number of scenarios where someone would say, well, I don't want to even do that. I just want to put in fiber and and get people connections and whatnot, and I don't want to be in that business. And and there I think you could say the local government uh, isn't subject to any particular one standard that they have to follow. And is that also true then for polls, or do poll owners have more latitude to just say, no, I don't want you on my poll? They do to a certain extent. The federal poll attachment regulations apply to only telecommunication services and cable television services as defined by federal law and interpreted by the FCC. So if you were up until the FCC's um, open internet order, if you were purely a broadband provider um, and standalone broadband provider, neither offering telecommunications nor cable service, you had no federal poll attachment rights under the federal scheme. Now, it's similar to what I just talked about with getting access to rights of way, broadband providers now specifically have poll attachment rights under the FCC's open internet order. And, and, and so they couldn't deny access to those facilities um, if you're just going to provide broadband. But someone who, say, is just a dark fiber provider, they do not have any enforceable federal poll attachment rights against the uh, telephone and electricity to own those polls. Then the second part of it is, under the federal structure of regulation of poll attachments, it's somewhat unique. Individual states can opt out of the federal rules if they say that we will regulate that instead. If you're in a state that does that, you'd have to look and see what the state does and how they regulate it to see whether or not you can obtain access and under what terms and conditions. And there's 21 states that have opted out of the FCC's regulation of poll attachments. And I think this is also where it gets even trickier in that you can have poll owners that say, uh, oh, sure, yeah, absolutely, come on our poll. Oh, but, you know, it's going to take us a while to figure out uh, which polls can accommodate you and, and you'll have to do this thing called make ready. What is that all about? Right. You're, you're absolutely right. Make ready is essentially all of the work that is necessary to make a poll accessible and available to accommodate a new attachment. And so if you picture an existing uh, utility poll that, says, say, towards the bottom has a telephone company attachment and a little bit above that has a cable company attachment and up on top has an electric if you or I wanted to come along and attach in that near where those communications wires were, 
the pole owner would have to take a look at the cable and telephone facilities that are already there, take a look at its electric facilities, the age of the pole, the size, et cetera, and figure out what work, if any, would be necessary to accommodate your proposed attachment. And in all honesty, that's the single biggest cost of pole attachments. There are annual rates, and, and you know people can debate the impact of those rates, and I'm sure the, the lower they are, the happier people that are attaching to the poles would be. But most people would tell you the more significant issue is the cost of getting onto those poles itself um, and having that, that make-ready work um, completed both in terms of the cost and the time, because uh, you, you want to make sure that that can be done in a relatively quick period of time, and, and that can be very difficult. The FCC has specific requirements and, and shot clocks, if you will, that the utilities have to follow in terms of how quickly they will get review a proposed pole attachment and then getting an estimate out and how quickly the work will get done. But even that, it's a pretty... Uh, complicated dance with a lot of moving parts. And in all honesty, a lot of the uh, slowdown comes not as much from the utility, but from the existing other attachments because they have no particular incentive to move, particularly if that new facility is going to be competing directly with them. So what is a, what, what is kind of a ballpark figure um, if you have one? I mean, I understand it can range terrifically, but what's the difference in costs between just getting on a pole that already has space available and having to do a lot of make-ready? Is it five times more expensive, ten times more expensive per pole? I would say certainly if you came to a pole that was pristine and you didn't need to do any additional make-ready um, on it, as compared to a pole where you needed to do significant make-ready but wanted to use the same poles. In other words, move the telephone company line down and the cable company line up and clear some vegetation, et cetera. Uh, it's probably five times as much. That's probably a good number. It could be considerably more than that, however, in a lot of markets where the poles either are smaller poles and they are already relatively fully occupied, in which case it's not just a question of rearranging existing facilities on a pole so much as it is taking that pole down and replacing it with a taller, larger pole. And of course, that would entail all of the rearrangement costs as well as the actual cost of, of setting and owning, a, uh, putting in a new pole. And that there, your number can go up to you know, 10 times as much. And then you multiply that out per pole if you're talking in an area where a large percentage of the poles need to be replaced and the costs get up very quickly. Well, this is where I can put in my plug for what Fort Collins is doing and what a number of other places have done, which is to have a long, multi-decadal uh, plan for getting rid of poles, putting everything underground. It's fantastically expensive to put electricity underground, especially, and it's pretty expensive to do you know, just communications. But over time, I'd sure love to see everything going underground with lots of extra conduit and duct space because it's just an aesthetic beauty issue. Uh, but also, it just strikes me that, that poles uh, just don't have the ability that uh, we want them to to be able to uh, facilitate um, you know, more competition because of these kinds of games that can be played. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think underground is, in most situations is, is far preferable. And certainly, if you can have a forward-thinking plan that 
when you're going underground, you move everything underground and you install additional conduit space to accommodate reasonably foreseeable growth. It just makes so much sense. Um, it, 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 in similar to you know the dig one policies that every time you're going to open up your public rights way um, for a project, notify all the entities around that have a existing or perceived future need for it and try and get them to go in at that time. And it really can cut down the costs for those individuals. But more importantly, as you said, it, it, it not only benefits competition, but it, it creates a situation where you don't have this, these games that, w- that can be played as that you do have with polls. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Let me ask you if there's anything else that uh, we should include in our right-of-way basic conversation. Well, one thing I would say is that there's two things on on the polls that are happening that are pretty interesting. One of them just happened in Connecticut, and there a number of advocates for community broadband and others were able to get space set aside on utility poles. They call it uh, municipal gain, but basically that is an attachment space on every utility pole that municipalities, governmental entities are entitled to obtain access to for virtually any purpose. And that's just a a great, great sort of forward-thinking type of um, uh, law. Well, I'm curious how that gets operationalized. Does that mean that that every poll suddenly has space or that as polls are replaced, they will then have space? I mean, in practice, what does that mean right now for those Connecticut towns? That is one of the issues that they are working through. Now, in Connecticut, I think they have a benefit of Prior to that, they had existing right, but it was narrowed to police and fire use that came as sort of the compensation for the use of the public right-of-way of letting a, a electric company or telephone company set a pole that certain space on that pole was set aside for municipal purposes. But at that point, it was narrowly tailored. So what they've done is they've broadened it out um, and made it explicit for any, any purpose. But you're absolutely right. There, you know, there's going to be a lot of devil in the details if they look at an existing poll and say there ha- is no gain that's on there. Uh, I, I would think that there's two ways that they're going to look at that. One, as you said, is at least going forward, new polls will have that installed and built into it. And second, if you come along as a municipality and you want to get onto space that it, where there isn't a defined space available on that, I think you would have a strong argument to say, I'm not going to pay for that make ready, or, or I'm only going to pay some reasonable uh, accommodation for that make ready because that space, uh, I'm already entitled to it. I have a sort of a reservation there. Great. What was the other point you wanted to make? More and more as a bit's a bit and fiber's uh, fiber, um, you, it, it makes no sense to continue to have this uh, stove type type of thing that one type of service gets access and another doesn't. Um, and I think it makes more sense to say, you know, any fiber, for example, or any similarly situated facilities should be able to be accommodated. And that way you would eliminate issues that um, some people have run into that they want to install dark fiber, but they can't get obtain access. And particularly the electric utilities should have no particular concern about what that service is being used for as long as it's legally authorized. And the telephone companies, to the extent they own the polls, they shouldn't be able to use their anti-competitive motivations 
to keep somebody from putting those types of facilities on. So I think that that's one that um, it, it just makes sense to broaden who obtains access and, and make it available um, to anybody that has similar types of facilities. Well, I think right now they pay different rates also, depending on which bucket you, of regula- regulation you fall into. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And, 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 that, and, and to show how ridiculous that is, is they had uh, the FCC, because of the st- way the, the federal statute was written, there was a cable formula and a telecommunications formula. It doesn't really matter what, they, you know, what the costs are. Just know that the cable formula was substantially less than the, t- the telephone formula. The way that the FCC implemented it, though, they said if a cable company provides Internet access, also, it continues to get the cable company rate. But if a telephone company provides Internet access, that will be at the telephone rate. So you basically had completely arbitrary price differences, particularly as the consumer is concerned. You know, it's the exact same service coming from both entities, but one costs more than the other, which just makes no sense. There's no operational need for that difference from the utility pole owner's perspective. Well, I think that your explanation at least gives us a chance to make sense of the rights of way. So thank you for coming on and and, uh, basically helping us to understand it. Uh, Happy to do it. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at CommunityNets. Check us out on Facebook. Search for Community Broadband Networks. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Thank you, BKFM B-Side, for the song Raise Your Hands, licensed through Creative Commons, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.